Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this week's edition of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and here with me, as always, is my best friend and fellow host, Patrick. Hello, everyone. Last week, we intended to chat about Richard Linkletter's new animated, semi-fantastical, semi-biopic of sorts, but as it does, sometimes life got in the way. So before we get into tonight's conversation, I was hoping to briefly talk about Apollo 10 and a half, a space age childhood first, if that's cool with you, Patrick. Totally fine with me. Cool. Because I'm super curious what you thought about it. We've yet to discuss. And I'm going to say from here on out, listeners, you can assume spoilers for both movies, that being Apollo 10 and a half, and then also our main feature, Ambulance. We're going to talk about both of them. I'll add timestamps into the episode in show notes in case you have no interest in Apollo 10 and a half and you want to skip ahead to the ambulance conversation. I will say this, Apollo 10 and a half is not really a movie that spoiling matters, frankly. It's not that kind of film. So you could know everything about it, and it's really more of like an experiential kind of thing. So you're fine, just in case you're possibly worried about that. So anyway, there's your warning. Do with it what you want. All right, Patrick. Well, for me, Apollo 10 and a half, it kind of swept me away a little bit when I first saw it. I wasn't sure what to expect going into it. Obviously, we've seen Richard Linkletter do some animation before with movies like Waking Life, but I wasn't really aware of what the story was going to be. I just knew what the title was, and so I was like, oh, cool. He's doing something animated, and it's about space. Yay. <laughs> I'm in, right? Like, I love Richard Linkletter, and I love space, So, and I love animation. So, I mean, you got the trifecta of me hooked right away. And what we end up getting is essentially what feels like him kind of recreating these memories of his own life in the late 60s as he was growing up and kind of telling this, as I said, semi-fantastical story about a young boy who clearly is meant to be somewhat of like a stand-in for himself, I think. But it's really not as much about that story. So the boy, you know, the whole thing kind of revolves around this idea this kid's going to go to the moon. Because, and I got to say, man, dude, that scene at the beginning when the NASA people show up and they almost <laughs> are like, they're like men in black, right? Like, right. You need to talk. <laughs> but they're matter of fact men in black. They're just, they're not, they're not like, they don't feel secretive. They feel kind of like, oh, these are the guys that you just brought in off the, <laughs> off the street like two weeks ago to to enforce this news on this guy like they don't feel yeah. very like official they feel kind of like like a buddy cop kind of pair here but it's it's a lot of fun that open those opening two scenes really work for what the premise is oh totally and and it's funny because they you know it shifts it gives you the initial thought real quick of like oh my gosh the fbi is showing up what's going on something incredible and then you realize real quickly like okay this is comedy there like, we need you to go to the moon so we built the lunar module too small <laughs> and we just need you random child down the street at this house to like get in this lunar module and go to the moon for us i mean the idea idea of it is just 
ridiculous. And of course, we learned that his dad works for NASA, so there's some tie-in reasons to why maybe they'd ask him. But still, it's pretty hilarious. And I think it really captures the idea of how so many kids, when they're growing up, want to be an astronaut. I know I did. I went through that phase. Did you ever go through that at all? Uh, not specifically an astronaut, but I think the the fantasticalness, that kind of big dream of being something important. Um, not growing up in the 60s, I don't think it was as prevalent, but True. the idea of eventually you know, going to the moon or just doing something big with your life, you know, that's always going to be a childhood dream because you know, you're you have toys that you're playing with. I mean, we grew up with Transformers. And so my you fantasy wanted to be a was always, yeah, I wanted to be, a tra- <laughs> I wanted to be, I wanted to be the kid or the little guy who got to be friends with the Transformer. That would be cool. Or to be a GI Joe that never got hit by the red lasers. I mean, I thought that was just kind of cool. So now I, I think the idea of big dreams is, is prevalent here, even though this is very specific to a time period in which NASA was essentially in this kid's backyard. And I think that made the idea of going to the moon, you know, these big dreams that Kennedy was launching at the beginning of the 60s. This movie really does hit on what I would call the homegrown story of Mm -hmm. the Apollo space program or the the space program in general, starting with the Mercury program and then Apollo. And that's kind of what appealed to me was the fact that it's kind of the equivalent to when you hear about. World War II and the Jews, your natural tendency is to lean into Anne Frank and that story. But this feels a lot more like the equivalent to The Book Thief, where there's stuff going on in the world that's related to a particular event or a series of events, and we're getting the suburban version of it. And I love the fact that this is what we actually get to experience. It's not like the big events that take place that lead to you know, July of 1969. We know that story has been told over and over again. And it's great. We get to see it from a 10 and a half year old kid's point of view, whose dad works in shipping and receiving <laughs> at NASA. And I love that. I love that homegrown feel that we get in the movie. And so it really does feel like a love letter to the 1960s, a love letter to childhood in general. And being able to really experience that, man, I smile from ear to ear watching this whole thing. This is definitely one of my favorites so far this year in, in terms of just being a great movie experience. And the animation itself is is just icing on the cake for me. Yeah, that's exactly the reaction I had was it, there's nothing great about this in the fact it's not great in the way that you think of like it's a transformative all-time kind of experience. It's just a pleasure and a joy, and it's so different than anything else that we typically watch, whether it's been the comedies and rom-coms that we've been on a run with or Batman, action movies, comic book movies. This is such a different vibe and and kind of thing that you go into, and it's only 90 minutes. It's quick, and yeah, I watched the whole thing with a big smile on my face as well. You mentioned the animation style. Before we did the episode, you and I did talk about this part of it. Before you even saw the movie, you'd asked me if it was rotoscoped. And so I looked that up and, you know, it's kind of really unique in this way that it's somewhat rotoscoped, but it's also somewhat mo-capped. And you can tell that, I think, when you see the way that these kids are moving and acting. And then 
they animated in pieces of the background behind them. And I just think it is absolutely stellar, <laughs> pun intended, and, and really just gorgeous to look at. I mean, I could watch pretty much any kind of storytelling in this style, I think, and have a good time with it. Yeah, rotoscoping is one of those interesting animation styles that for me, I feel like it's a good appetizer. Like it can get annoying really fast if you don't do it well enough. And when you deal with that particular style of rotoscoping, or I'm saying, my bad, when you deal with that particular style, comma, rotoscoping, you have to be able to tell stories that feel a little bit more surreal because that's what it lends itself to. So when you watch A Scanner Darkly or Waking Life, the fantasy or the psychological side of that is really amplified by this technique. And I think it plays really well when we get into those moments where he is in the limb, where he's going through the whole sequence. I actually love the fact that we're getting the Apollo 11 sequence of events parallel to his experience on the mission before. But I think what's really interesting, Aaron, is when you take the speeches of President Kennedy and you put those in an animation style, those things that are basically transferred to rotoscope, when you take television shows that he refers back to throughout their time in, in the 60s, like what a typical Saturday is, those types of things I thought were really fantastic because they didn't feel realistic, but they were clearly taken from actual footage. Like I recognize Kennedy's speech and even down to the guy in the background smoking a cigarette behind him. I'm like, I remember that. I remember that speech. So to see it in an animation type of style, it was just fun to watch. And I never got distracted by that. And so I thought Linkletter did a really great job of giving us early on this idea that the story we're going to tell you is going to be based in fantasy. It's going to be a fantasy, but it's going to be based in reality. And I think that's where I was grabbed. I thought Jack Black did a fantastic job narrating this awesome. whole thing. Awesome I mean, job. He has, this, he has a slight so country. So subtle. It's a slight country yes. accent. Like he's from Houston. And I felt like I was just walking through the the summer of of 69 with him where he was telling me about playing in the yard i love seeing the fact that the things like i you know i had an older brother and some of the things that this kid was dealing with at home like having to rush to the tv to change the channel and then getting kind of sat on by his sisters i'm like that's something that i've experienced where i've been beat up by my brother i've been told no don't change the channel and even though this was very much back in the 60s, two decades before I was even born, or maybe a decade before I was even born. I'm getting old enough to forget how old I am. It felt familiar because there were shows that we watched. There was routine that we had. And so by hearing him walk us through, here's what Friday night was like. And then on Saturday, we did this. And then, you know, case in point, there's this great moment. I think it's the day of the launch where he is putting like tons and tons and tons of sugar on his already frosted flakes. And I'm like, that's what I did. I put like Absolutely. eight, eight yep. spoonfuls worth of sugar on mm -hmm. frosted flakes. And I'm surprised I'm still alive and not in a sugar coma because I did that on Saturday mornings. And so being able to walk through that, even if the 
elements themselves weren't familiar, the acts of that, the the repetition, the routine of all that was very much like, yep, that's what life was like in Arkansas. That's what summers were like when I was growing up. I'd go to the pool and then I'd come home and I'd be exhausted and I'd lay on the couch and I would I remember staying up until midnight when the the signal would would go black and they'd do the mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> do the the national anthem and then there would be no signal. I mean, kids these days don't understand that that at one point yeah. television would stop working after a certain time <laughs> period of the night and you would just have to go to bed. <laughs> and so yeah. all this stuff was incredibly familiar to me. And so being able to walk through this with this character and his family was like, yeah, I remember that only I didn't have a big giant Saturn V rocket in my backyard getting ready to take off every other month, you know, to do crazy missions to the moon. Which would have been cool, though. It would have been cool. It would have been cool. And this, to be honest, I wish I lived in the 60s because if this was true life, then I would love to have that as a bonus, knowing that this big thing was occurring in our Mm -hmm. country. Like, I would love, have loved to have lived in that time period when all that stuff was amazing. Well, it's interesting because, and I'll touch on some of the things I liked about the summer as well, but first I'll piggyback off that because, you know, that stuff still is happening and to some extent. There's a thing called the James Webb Telescope that just launched and is out there, and so many people don't even know this thing exists, Patrick. This is a massive telescope that's out there on like a 10-year journey, and it is bringing us incredible images or its goal once it gets out there far enough is going to be like you know galaxies away it's going to be sending pictures back i mean we are still doing things that are incredible i mean we live in a time where we make fun of it but billionaires are literally taking random people who have money to the moon or to space you know just for a joyride that is in- crazy. Like that's sci-fi stuff. Like we live in that world and we just kind of treat it like, eh. <laughs> oh, well, you know, like who cares? Uh, it is really such a different vibe, but it, that stuff still exists. And yeah, it definitely kind of sparked both an awe, a, a reminder of that feeling of awe, but also a sadness like you're getting at with, it's not quite like the, our like reverence and passion for human space exploration is not where it was it's it's more a tourism kind of a vibe i was talking about ad astra i did an episode of ad astra with cinephile hissy fit podcast a a little while back i recorded one and i don't know if it's dropped yet or not in their feed but we talked about that because in ad astra there's like you know applebee's on the moon and it's very touristy and i feel like that's the direction that humanity's going it's not about like can we push ourselves and see what's out there? It's like, how can we monopolize this stuff? So I like that this like recaptured that feeling. But like you, man, the summers, the pool, I did the Frito pie, Frito chili pie in the bag thing. Like I've actually done that. So that was really neat to see. I love the baseball stuff. This is, this is mm-hmm. where you, you know it's Linkletter, right? He's The kid's a cinephile and He's obsessed with 2001 A Space Odyssey, which clearly is where they got the name for this movie. Like, you can see it's very obvious. And then, you know, Astral World visits. Uh, that reminded me of, like, us and Wild River Country, even oh, yeah. though it's, you know, water park versus kind of theme park. Mm-hmm. The baseball stuff at the Astros games. 
you know, we would go to the Arkansas Travelers because that's what was local at the time for us. So, I mean, like all of these things, like we were into some of these things. And in the music, I grew up and went through a long period where I was into the, we called them the golden oldies. I don't even know how that works anymore as time progresses. Like, yeah, they, like the 80s are the oldies to us now. Like, yeah, my emo from the 90s and 2000s is the oldies, I guess. Yeah. But, um, but like the 60s, right? And then the 70s kind of rock. There's so much of that in this soundtrack. Oh my gosh, I just loved the soundtrack to this movie so much. And it brought back Cool 95, like sitting, yes. in, my water, sitting in my waterbed, listening to Cool 95, calling in a dedication, hoping that the girl would like be listening to that specific moment. And well, first hoping you got on and, and it got announced. Second, hoping, you know, they played your song and then hoping that the person is listening. Again, maybe you get like a beeper, <laughs> like, a, like a, your pager goes off to tell, you know, with the, some kind of a notification. I don't know. Just it was like just totally mesmerizing to me how it brought me back into all of mm-hmm. those feelings. And, you know, just getting to live with it for 90 minutes was such a joy, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I thought the soundtrack was amazing. And I, I, I've told people, maybe you've heard this from me that i feel like i was born in the wrong decade because i love music from the 60s and 70s it's just you know hearing them talk about the monkeys and joplin and these these things again i wish i were around in this period because i would love to own those lps and (laughs) i was like the sister who would just listen to the same song on repeat and annoy the the crap out of my brother because i would just play it over and over again he'd be like shut up that's enough but it was just that's how it was and yep cool 95 i remember the jingle cool 95 you know and for me it was like the point 94.1 classic rock and it it just those are that's the summer for me i remember talking to my wife a couple of days ago we were we have this uh it was broken this weekend because my son lost his game but the last two games we've been playing eye the tiger on the way to games and those are the games oh i love it up until yesterday so apparently that wasn't the magic there but that playlist would continue with other 80s stuff, more Survivor. And I was like, oh, man, I remember listening to this by the pool and, you know, eating my Nutty Buddy. And all this. I mean, it was just like, yes, flashbulb memories because of that kind of music. And I thought this is probably the music that were flashbulb memories for Linkletter when he was growing up. And yes, like you, I did the Frito Chili Pie as well. I thought that that was that was summer camp for me. I remember going to Lake Nixon day camp and like. Two o'clock in the afternoon, like that morning, we'd get our little orders in for our afternoon snack. And I would always say, yep, get me Fritos and get me, you know, some cheese and some chili or whatever. And that's what I would do. And it would, you know, I think it was like $2.50. And my mom was like, it was just, it was great. And I love that stuff. It's it's all those kind of memories that are, you, you have, right? Like there's so many things that we don't remember, but I love the one where he remembers that his brother would only get vanilla ice cream. Like that's ingrained yes. in his memory is that one yes. thing is that like he always wondered what is wrong with you? You know, like there's 31 flavors and you're getting vanilla. And he like he's like always harbored that kind of like almost resentment and just like not understanding what is wrong with this guy and why he only wanted vanilla. And I feel like that's the kind of memory I have. Like I don't I couldn't tell you what happened in a 4-year period, but I can pick out like random Mm-hmm. little moments that define kind of how you remember people yeah and i've got love for that guy because i'm a vanilla ice cream guy like no, oh no, yeah you go to, yeah i'm just who, i mean who i needs? love vanilla too but i don't typically get it like that 
that's a little i mean you can give vanilla anywhere i didn't i was I don't know. We don't have Whoa, to. Whoa, let's not let's not <laughs> let's not sell vanilla short because there okay, are places okay. that just give killer vanilla. So okay. I will defend yes. that. <laughs> all right. Well, that's probably all we've got for Apollo Ten and a Half, I would say. If you haven't checked it out yet, it is on Netflix, so definitely get around to that. I think that well we both think that everyone would enjoy this one. It's well worth a watch. So, main event, Ambulance. This is, in case you didn't know, Patrick, I'm going to tell you up front, the remake. Because I didn't realize that until after I'd seen it. I didn't go into this knowing this. But this is a remake of a 2005 Danish film called, also called Ambulance in our language. It's called Ambulancen in their language. Well, that's pretty close. Uh, and their version is almost identical at least from what i could find reading about it i didn't get a chance to see it but i know that it is like an 80 minute movie versus a, a little over two hours we'll talk about that their version is kind of like a real time type of situation where it's like it's and actually bays to me feels like it's intending to be kind of real time for the most part um but yeah it's the similar thing you know they're the brothers they get in a situation they go same exact plot essentially like without a little bit of the crazy over the top unbelievableness of michael bay's version so i just thought that was neat and wanted to put that out there in case people wanted to go check out the original and compare all right here's where i want to start with ambulance patrick you are famously critical of michael bay's style sometimes most of the time i i wrote down Maybe from Transformers on, and I'll let you clarify this, because I know that you have great love for some of his 90s stuff, just like I do. When we're talking about The Rock, we're talking about Conair, we're talking about Armageddon. These are all hits for you, for sure. Very different than you kind of talk about Michael Bay in general. Sure. And yeah. so I wanted to know how this went for you, because I was a little nervous going into it. I felt better coming out of it, honestly. But I'm curious, like, what's your deal with Michael Bay? Where does it stand going into this? And how does it stand coming out of this, I guess, kind of broadly? What's the deal? What's the deal with this Michael Bay? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. I think the, the early stuff in the 90s was definitely more of my favorites. Um, and then, you know, I like Transformers. I thought that it was definitely... Um, I'm a what I would call a modern Michael Bay movie and the things that happen afterwards all the movies that he's produced afterwards are in that same kind of you know pool of of style including Ambulance my issue with him or my my challenge with him and, and I'll preface this by saying I have tried to grow up a little bit as a as a critic as a as a movie appreciator because the fact is there is something about doing something as a director or a writer that the subjectivity of it i think should allow for more grace when it comes to um appreciating the work of of someone so i can completely dislike a director or a writer and still appreciate the fact that they're putting out work uh, as someone who has done some short films in the past it's hard and the fact is you do what you know and you're going to lean into your strengths. Christopher Nolan hits all the the bells and whistles for me, 
but even he misses the mark. You know, Tenet's not one of my favorites. Dunkirk is good, but not great for me. But I can appreciate it. Interstellar is probably my favorite next to um, some of the, the other prestige. ones. Thank you. <laughs> no, prestige, I know what it my, is. My brain and, and Inception both. Yeah. So so when I when I watch Michael Bay, what I see is really a subjective kind of approach for myself. I like reserved Michael Bay. I like Michael Bay who uses his bombastic style, uses his big scenes and his high action as complementary to an overall story. And I think this really played out more obviously when the writer strike hit during the Transformers period and he was essentially kind of writing the script and directing it. He's not a writer. And I think that's okay to say that. He is a director. He has a style. He implements that style. And one of the criticisms that I think the guy from Every Frame of Painting had is one that sort of I was able to, it articulated it well for me that every shot is a big shot. Like there's nothing that, there's not a lot of times when he's quiet. And so when you look at Armageddon, when you look at those earlier movies, you have quiet moments that help offset some of the big action. Uh, there was a scene in Ambulance that I just kind of laughed out loud where the the doctor, the ex-boyfriend, was making like a lean cuisine, and it felt like the way it was cutting and the way it was being shot felt like this is another big action scene. And I'm like, dude, 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 stop. Not every scene has to be this way. But I knew that going in. And so I can't hate the guy for doing that because it is what it is. And so at the end of this whole thing, it was too much for me. Like it was two hours of just nonstop. I thought so. <laughs> but that's okay because it helped really kind of quantify or qualify what my what my struggle is with him. And it's just that it's not for everybody and that his style when used so much is not for everybody. And it's not for me. But I can't say that he's not good at it because he is. I mean, it's it's a masterpiece. I won't say masterpiece. I don't want to get Don mad at me. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's brilliant the way that he shoots. And his shots are so artistic. They're beautiful. It's wonderful to look at. But when you have a thousand cuts in a scene, it makes it distracting for me. And so overall, as a story, I didn't have a lot of substance to it. And so by the by the end of it, I, I literally I was I usually when I go to a theater, I usually sit in the row right before the handicap. So it's got the rail so I can get the fullest experience with my eyes because I don't usually do RPX. I just can't afford doing that all the time. For me, I wish I would have sat in the back because it was just a lot and it was hard for me to keep up. But again, when I watch a movie like this, I can see the entertainment value and it's it's definitely not a movie I'd want to watch at home. Like it's definitely made for the theaters. And I think that's where Bay shines is that he knows how to make things big. He knows how to make these really creative shots. This one was no exception. And so coming out of it, I'm, I'm more appreciative of his style. I just wish personally from a fan, from the casual viewer that he would tone it back because he can have that in Armageddon. And what I love about Armageddon is that it had that, but it also had other things. It had a good story. It had compelling characters. And this, I think, leans heavily into one thing. If you had a lot of compelling characters but no action in an action movie, it would feel cheap. If you had a lot of action 
with not a lot of character development, it would feel like one long heist, which is kind of what this felt like a really long chase scene. And I've said this in the mm -hmm. past that maybe it's just because I'm becoming that crotchety old man that says, get off my lawn. <laughs> but I want my action scenes to be pretty tight. Like I want them to not go 15, 20 minutes. That's one of my still criticisms about Man of Steel is that the fight sequence at the end takes longer than I want it to, as much as I love that movie. And I, I think that Michael Bay as a director, he leans into that strength, but for me, it's to a fault. So, from, so I came out of the movie going, all right, appreciate it. You know what? Love Jake Gyllenhaal. Love the cast. Yeah. Uh, give me, give me Jake and, and Bay, but give me, give me more character. Give me more subtlety. Give me a little bit of time to breathe and I'm good. Yeah. I think all of that is very similar to how I felt. I mean, I liked it more than you and I typically do. And yeah, I saw it in Dolby. I actually wasn't able to get to my press screening, bought Dolby tickets for opening night. And I'm very glad I did. It's my favorite format. I like it more than IMAX. It is more comfortable seats. The screen is big and wide, not quite as tall, but the crystal clearness of the screen image and then the sound is what makes Dolby just unreal. And for this, it was unrelenting. I mean, it, it was insane, frankly. Like when I was on my way home, we got in the car and it was 12 o'clock or something. It was one of those like late night movies for me. This does not happen. I don't go to movies that, you know, that start at nine o'clock and have trailers. That was really weird. It's just not what I do because I'm a press screenings and Tyler and I get in the car and he goes, dad, you're not driving an ambulance. This is not a car chase before we even started. Right. And I was like, I know, but like my heart was beating and I legit was on such an energy high from that movie. And it is a two hour adrenaline rush. And I felt that. And it was, I was on my way home and I was like, man, I got to go to bed. I got to get up at, you know, six o'clock and I got, I got work <laughs> tomorrow. Like, I got a meeting in the morning. I need to get some sleep. And it was a bit like I couldn't just lay down and go to bed. And a lot of movies, I would be able to do that. But I was just on such an amped up energy. And I enjoyed the heck out of my theater viewing because of the sound and everything about it. It is not a movie that I would feel the need to watch over and over and over though. And it is because of the plot. Like you're saying, I think it's just enough plot to be interesting. When I found out that the Danish film was 80 minutes long, I was like, man, I know Michael Bay's never going 80 minutes, but if you could have made this a hundred minutes, like slightly over an hour and a half, I think everything in this with the cartel can go. Part of that is because I loved Captain Monroe and that character. And I did not want him to die. And I feel like he died so, like, without any sort of <laughs> pomp and circumstance. He yeah. just, he randomly just gets shot and you see yep. him dead on the ground and he's never referenced again. He's just his, over. Who's taking care of his dog? Who's taking care yeah, of Nitro? I, that was a question I had too. Like, what's going yeah. on with the dog? Like, one of the early running gags, which I think. You know, that's a very typical Michael Bay joke. Like it, that guy and that dog joke, that comes straight out of Bad Boys. Like he ripped that. I mean, I love that he's he's so aware of what he's trying to do with this movie that he even references his own movies. His characters reference the Michael Bay movies and a character straight up says, this feels like GTA. 
And I was like, yes, it does feel like GTA. The whole movie is a GT Grand Theft Auto chase scene. Yep, absolutely. If you were to put stars on the screen, you know, gradually increasing as you had the helicopters like chasing you down the the spillway. Amazing shot, by the way. Like that and like the drone photography is phenomenal. I love the way he used the drone photography in this. But like I, yeah, the, the captain just dies. He's easily the best character outside of the three main cast he has some development he's interesting he's got charisma the fbi agent like none of that needed to be in this movie you just throw that away right make a phone call learn that he's got this backstory that you needed to dump on us in 90 seconds about his dad was actually this massive crook and oh now we understand why jake's crazy the way he is you know like you give us that in the middle of the movie the fbi agent only existed to give us that piece of information. Exactly. You didn't yeah. need him in the movie for another whatever. And and so that kind of annoyed me as well. And so, yeah, I'm with you. Like, if you cut it out, make it 100 minutes, just make it feel real time, you know, like that he's, okay, I need money. I'm going to meet up with my buddy. Oh, crap. Or my, my brother. My brother wants me to go on this heist. Well, I guess I'm going on a heist. And then it all goes wrong. And then we go through the chase. It could have been a, a lot better, I think maybe even masterful um, because it would have felt right. But I, I understand like it being too much and it's not too much in the way that he sometimes is too much. It's like different because he's not, this was made on $40 million, which is insane to me. I, I mean, it does not feel like a $40 million movie. Yeah. It feels, it feels more expensive. And I think that's a strength that we have here. When, when I saw that in the show notes, I was like, what, what? 40 million? That's cheap. I know. But I think, you know, I'm trying to rationalize that and going, okay, well, we're talking about a confined space. We're talking about practical effects using the drones. We're not talking about a lot of big things that happen. I think there's only like two or three big explosive scenes, quite literally. But a lot of the shots that feel big are those aerial shots that some of my favorite shots that that are in the movie are when he basically turns things upside down. He has those shots that come down from the top of wherever, and then they switch over, and so the building is now upside down. It's now at the top of the screen as opposed to the bottom. And so it feels very much like a superheroic point of view where you've got Iron Man or Superman or somebody flying through the city. And so, you know, this is LA, and LA is a very spread out city. So he had a lot of places that he could go, but I think that the real estate that he used literally and figuratively are very well done. They're, they're used purposefully and the, the practicality of using phones. So you don't have to go to a bunch of different locations. I mean, that's going to cut down your budget is if you don't have to shoot at different locations. I think there was a grand total of maybe seven because a lot of times if you don't count like every place that they roll by in the ambulance, if you thought can you count the streets as a location, to me, I feel yeah. like no, that's going to be a house, a warehouse, yeah. bank, and then the cartel warehouse and underneath the bridge. Yeah. And then in front of the hospital, like they're, yes. you're right, six or seven tops. So I think that that makes it cheaper, but he is very resourceful as a director in saying, OK, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And you really didn't have in a typical car chase scene. You don't have long stretches of this ambulance going through multiple streets and doing this stuff. So you really do cut down on that by sort of piecing pieces to piecing pieces, piecing shots together. <laughs> That's where I think the cuts 
the work cuts. really well is you get from one place to another, one corner to another, one turn to another without having to actually take this ambulance to these different streets. You could basically use, you know, four or five blocks to represent your entire LA area. So you get GTA in a box here. And I think that that's a strength of what he did in the movie was constraining the locations, but still making it feel like this was all over LA when it really wasn't. Yeah, no, I think that's right. It's a good way to put it. And the drone photography helps with the, yeah, for the sure. And I think as those, well. yeah, those are really on full display in the bank where I think there yeah. was something you sent me off. Yeah. It's, it's just really cool. The one where it, comes in early and it there's a couple different shots that really stood out but one is like up at the top of the bank and coming down the side of the building and then there's another one where the drone flies through the bank and like shows like the pillars and gives you this kind of condensed feeling of the space and it just is the movement and i I was like i was geeking out i mean i thought those were amazing additions and then i was reading an article afterwards too about how he said you know, they were filming in LA at one point and they just rolled up to an intersection. There were a bunch of cops and the cops were like, Hey, we want to be in the movie. And he had not prearranged and paid for the cops to do this thing. But they like this whole group of them were like, we love you. We love what you do. We love your portrayal of police officers and we want to be part of this. And so then they started like blocking off parts of the intersection or the interstate for him so he could like do his thing. And he was like, that's part of how I did this on a budget is because I have this reputation and people want to work with me and want to be part of it because of his reverence for that, that profession, right? Whether it be cops, whether it be military, that's a thing. Like he's, Bay is all about, Bay and Peter Berg are all about like the hero shots and an actual heroism that that I understand are we're in a place in culture that, that there are people that just don't want to see it. They don't, they don't want to believe it honestly, because they want to believe in all of the bad things that we do that, are, that exist. They want to think about all of the reasons for why people are in positions to have to be heroic. If we're talking about like the military or even police action, like, oh, cops are bad because of X, Y, Z. Okay, do you want cops to stop bank robbers with automatic rifles from shooting in the street? The answer should be yes. And we are seeing a heroic act of them doing that. There should be no ruin, you know, problem with that. Same thing, I was rewatching uh, 13 Hours after I watched this, the movie about Benghazi. And to his credit, and I, I'm sorry to call him out on the podcast, but Coles's review of it, he'd watched it recently and gave it like two stars. And he was talking about how the movie just is so macho and like it's just completely ridiculous the way that these men act. And it's all this like American kind of jingoism. And it's all about like, yeah, yeah, you know, rah, rah. Amer-. And I was like, you're completely wrong. Like, I, I don't mean to argue. And I know that that's kind of a common thing that people want to criticize. But like, that's not Bay. Bay's movie is about dudes who were just in a situation. The politics have nothing to do with any of this stuff, just like an ambulance. It's just people in a position, and they're trying to stop the thing so that people don't get hurt. That's what he loves to show. I mean, The Rock had politics in it, but like he loves to show people trying to be heroic. And, you know, his camera work as well. You get all of his classic shots here in spades. 
you know, cameras swirling around. You get the 360 over the heads, which is a Bay thing, looking down on a character who's looking up at the camera. And then you also get the, like, low camera angle. There's one of uh, Isaac Gonzalez, uh, Cam's character, at the end of the movie as she's, like, walking out of the hospital, you know, swinging her hair or whatever, and it's looking up at her in this she's-a-hero kind of fashion. It's just classic Michael Bay. One thing I really did appreciate was, like, there is zero sexualization in this movie, Patrick. That's true. That was that, cool. That, that was a very well, and it's almost. I mean, it would be inappropriate. The only time it would be quote appropriate would be near the end in the in the thug hideout, where you you know you'd expect see some to have, dudes like, with women on them, yeah, you know, half naked. Or but something. even that was. I mean, even that was just very very short. And look, a Martinez is Poppy. I remember him from Longmire. He is fantastic in that show. So when I see him pop up and I'm like, oh man, because he's he's pretty he's pretty bad in the other one too in the other in that <laughs> show. So watching him in this, I was like, okay, yeah, I, I like this. Even if it wasn't necessary, I'm glad that he was in it because this is where your GTA comes in. This is this is the part where you're like, okay, here's our typical, you know, what I would call foreign bad guy who you know, is like, you gave me 10 million, but I really want 20, you know, that kind of thing. And as you mentioned, you know, Bay likes to celebrate or he likes to amplify the hero. But I think the other side of that, which probably just aggravates people, is he's unapologetic about stereotypes. He's unapologetic about the fact that would this be cultural appropriation? Would this be like stereotyping? He'd be like, yeah, it absolutely is. But that's not the movie I'm making. I'm not making a movie where I'm going to try to represent the most accurate portrayal. I'm superimposing an ideology on what is normal. And I think that's okay because that could become almost allegorical (laughs) on a more amplified version. This is like an adrenaline rush of allegory. And if you could give Michael Bay some kind of like stature, I think that's what he does is he is a hyper involved allegorical storyteller with his direction. Everything is big. And if you take it at that, then for me, I'm like, okay, I can totally understand that. So having having this character Poppy show up in the middle of the movie and become part of the the end game, if only, if only to set up Danny and Will's go left, go left, no, go left, and they just, you know, gun <laughs> down everybody. To me, from an action movie, that's worth it. It's worth it to have that character that you can kill off in that kind of way. And so, sure, is it cheap? Does it feel over the top? Yep. And I don't think the guy in the director's chair is apologizing one bit for that because it's what creates a great action sequence. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's the thing, like taken individually. I mean, even when you get to see the cartel in action, in addition to that scene, which is great the go left and, you know, oh, I love you and my brother and I'm sorry, we're fighting. And one of us goes left and the other one goes, I loved how he did it. Like that the part of the script I thought was so good. And but even when you see the cartel like rolling up and taking out the police blockade, which was not asked for, right? You get to have a little bit of empathy there when you're like, well, that's not what they wanted to do. I mean, Jake's character is not actively trying to kill people. He in fact, he is a bank robber. He wants to get out of things without doing that. He says it over and over and over and, and takes actions that I would say are in line with that. But these guys, this is how they do things, right? And so they roll up and just with this machine guns and Gatlin gun and bombs and they just kill people. And so, I mean, it looks awesome from a visual like action scene standpoint. It's just like all of the time it takes to get to that point 
and get out of that point that it adds feels superfluous you know and then you have the whole sure saving the guy with the putting your hands in it i mean there are some supreme logic jumps that end up having to happen because none of that is accurate although it creates a cool scenario with tech where i loved it watching them like not the surgery itself because that just, i was like this is gross i don't like this kind of stuff but when you're watching like the doctor and he's like i don't know what to do i'm I'm not a trauma surgeon you know and he's like hold on and then they get like this three-way video call of these dudes on a golf course in ambulance i mean just from a visual entertainment standpoint that is really cool and freaking neat way to show that happening even even if it's completely unrealistic that she would have to you know take this clippy from her hair completely unsanitary by the way they're like all about gloves and she just takes this clippy out of her hair and she's like here let me just fix your spleen right here click um <laughs> And he's fine. And then he wakes up and he's fine. He's like, oh, no, no. oh I'm going to get up. I'm going to let me help. Let me get this gun and help. Out. Anyway, you got to you got to just let some of it go. Sure. So I, I mean, it, it was fun. Yeah. And to me, I think that letting it go really sort of embraces the fact that there are tonally just just off the wall things happening. So you have big action, you have dramatic moments, and they're immediately followed up by comedic moments. And so there were times when I'm like, I'm laughing, but am I supposed to? And is this, has this been, you know, appropriately set up from a comedic standpoint? And again, it's fine because I, I know what I'm getting myself into, but I think that's a criticism that I have where there were there were times when I didn't know if I was watching a drama with occasional like comic beats or if I was watching, um, you know, Wedding Crashers, <laughs> you know, because I, I felt as though some of the like the whole bit with the with the paint I thought was funny, but I'm like, you're getting chased make any by sense at all. But no. Yeah. Sense to me. So in and of itself, the joke is funny, but I'm like the way the way Gyllenhaal plays it out. He's like, no, I said blue. And I'm like, am I supposed to be laughing or is he going to just pop this dude because he didn't use blue? Like, again, I don't get enough of I get I get enough backstory about Danny that he doesn't kill that he doesn't want to be like his dad but not enough to really feel empathetic for him because when he gets to that scene I'm like does it matter and why are you using neon what's what's are you marking the truck so there there were there were empty moments where I'm like I don't know when this was explained I mean was it was it one of the cuts it was that you, never you explained out? why yeah. it was covered I, I don't I still don't understand even if it was blue like he wanted I don't get it unless he was trying to say this isn't an ambulance because it's all blue. I mean, that's completely unrealistic. Like you would know it was a painted blue vehicle that looks like an ambulance. It would have lights on top. With 45 like, I, seconds. Just, yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> and and it, they're all like, and it just doesn't make any sense. Cause like you have other cars peeling off and ambulances. What? So they're just not going to follow the, the blue one. Like I, it just, it just didn't make any sense. Yeah. But I, you know, to an extent I just kind of wrote it off as like, okay, and I love the performance. Jake Gyllenhaal yeah. as a psychopathic, over-the-top villain, shot in extreme close-up almost the entire movie. He's, <laughs> he's phenomenal. And I think he... I love Yaya as well in everything yeah. I've seen him in ever since Black Manta and Aquaman. And I I think they played off of each other so well in this movie. Uh, but yeah, like I, I wrote it off as just... He's crazy. He's literally, at this point, he is so flustered, Patrick, as this chase is going on because 
and that is where the information is helpful is that we know because of that data dump from the dumb FBI agent that he's got like 30 something bank robberies under his belt. Nothing's ever gone wrong. Can you imagine what it would feel like anxiety wise to be in this situation where you've never had to deal with this and you're trying to make these decisions and you really want to keep your brother alive and out of trouble, but you also want to stay alive. He is truly losing his crap. He's not a criminal in this way. And I think we see that. And so some of the decision-making I wrote off as like almost realistic because he's not going to be making the best decisions. He's going to be crazy and unable to figure things out. Um, I, I did kind of, long for a little bit more of the emotional storytelling. So I like Cam's character. And I think she did a great job as well, performance-wise. And I don't really, I mean, it's entertaining enough to me. It works. But I think, you know, a perfect movie, I needed a little more of why Will needs the money for surgery than a three-minute phone call, and boom, he's off and running. I needed more relationship stuff there, and I needed more from Cam than (laughs) just the one note we get is she's determined to save lives at no matter what. That's it. She's a Hippocratic yeah. oath. Like is everything to her kind of thing. Sure. And um, so I, I kind of wanted more. If we would have gotten slowed down moments, that's what I wanted from them. Yeah. And, and the thing is the first sequence we get with her and the girl was incredible. Like I was like, Oh my gosh, is Michael Bay. Does, does Michael Bay have a heart? Is he, is he going to, tug at the heartstrings of of me no he's not after that we're just high action and then he bookends it with her going back to but it was so silly at that point i know right because, because I'm she like, gets out of this she gets Tadric, okay sorry quick tangent she gets out of the ambulance they are blockaded after this thing that has killed dozens of cops and fbi agents and caused incredible terror for hours across the city they have them snipers all over the buildings outside of the hospital watching down on these two guys laying on the ground, dying out in real time. She walks away with a backpack. She just walks out with her bag, says hi to the wife, drops off some money, walks into the hospital, goes and you know checks up on Will, checks up on the little girl, and then goes home. There's no, there's no like debrief. (laughs) There's no, hi, can we talk to you a little bit about what you went through? She just goes away. Anyway, it was, that was the one logic jump that I was like too far. This is yeah, like, you just didn't know how to end this movie. I think (laughs) you probably should have ended it with them dying in the ground. Yeah. I mean, the fact is that's what we get is what I feel like is a very plastic bow that's being tied up on everybody. I do too. And I think there could have been a better job again in the script, like you talked about earlier too, but it should have made it more clear that, okay, Will is going to end up in jail for life. Most likely Will is going to prison forever. Like just because the cop said he didn't shoot him or, you know, whatever, like the cop is saving him from the death penalty. Right. That's really so because the way it plays out is almost like Will gets off and there's no accountability for the, amazing amount of collateral damage yes whether you did it directly or not your actions are responsible for all of those deaths that occurred yeah right you are part of those and so the the fallout from this is 
your life is over yeah. period one way or the other not com- like literally over but like figuratively over and yeah. i didn't really it did lean a little too much i think in the hero aspect that's and that's what i was getting at is that we felt more like okay the good guys are going to get off like even cam i mean cam's got some got some responsibility too not just for shooting but the fact is is she <laughs> while she was maintaining her hippocratic oath trying to keep the cop alive i mean she she kept you know she kept the snipers out and <laughs> you know so she's She's an accomplice. Now she needs a trial to kind of prove her innocence. And I would probably lean more towards that, but she's got some kind of uh, investment in this whole thing too. And I think that's where it derailed for me because I want a little bit more complexity. I want consequences, but I know I'm not going to get that because what I see Michael Bay doing in this movie is all of his good stuff. All of his ideology exists in the, 10th minute all the way up to the two minutes before the credits roll. And then he'll bookend it with the emotion. And occasionally you'll get a couple of small pockets, but everything else is so fast and so intense that it kind of gets drowned out by all the action. So yes, I absolutely want more emotion. I'm not going to blame him for that because I don't expect it from him. And I think that if we had more of that, I would feel, and, and again, less time. I don't want to keep rehashing those things. I think that's where the sweet spot is for me because I would love to see more of his type of action in movies that demand it, movies that lack in it. Like I, I would be interested to see what kind of style he would bring to a Fast and Furious movie because those are big altogether, but we have the emotional aspect of it, at least in the first seven. How would how would that play on? That would be interesting. That would be really interesting. I think it would be kind of cool to watch. But if we had that plus what we love about Fast and Furious, about the idea of family, man, that would be fantastic. Plus, let's just bring Jake Gyllenhaal into that universe. That'd be lots of fun. Why not? Jake, Why not? Brie Larson, bring them Come all. On. Let's Yaya do it. Too. Let's just, and Aya <laughs> Gonzalez. She'd fit in really well, too, actually. Just how about everybody in Hollywood be part of the family? That no, guy. they do that in Oppenheimer. That's, that's, oh, that's. That, that, it's dedicated to options. No, that's only white guys, so oh, sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's My a bad. little bit limited. <laughs> My bad. My bad. We got the POCs happening with FF, so it's good. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. But this is really good though. As a, and I, I thought, you know, as a car chase movie, it's exciting. There are some moments in it and some singular shots that I absolutely adored. Like I mentioned the one in the spillway or whatever, when they're when he's shooting at the helicopter. It's just that image. I put it in the folder for you to use as our header image. Hopefully you did. I don't know if you did or not, but um, it's the, I just love that shot of like helicopters chasing an ambulance and a dude with an a you know AR like firing at them from the window. It's just nuts. <laughs> it looks cool. And then the heist, even though it's super short, I really enjoyed the heist aspect of this and the way that Jake gets kind of stuck in the having to let this guy in right this cop and just the whole scene of awkwardness with him going up to the teller and he's like i'm really the only one in here yeah aren't i you know like the way that the tension was built in that moment i thought that scene was awesome and so was you know the shootout around the bank afterwards yeah um as they're getting into the ambulance before they get into the ambulance or off and running so i agree i agree lots of lots of good lots of great technical stuff going on with that yes and i uh it reminded me a little bit, 
I played a while back Payday 2 and that opening. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The opening mission. I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is basically the opening to Payday 2. So we'll just yeah. <laughs> leave it at that. GTA, Payday 2. Let's just, what else can we combine with this? Right. Mr. Mr. Bay. <laughs> Need some Max Payne bullet time, maybe. Jake Gyllenhaal, like dodging bullets or something. I don't know. For sure. All right. Well, that is going to do it for us on this episode of Feel and Film. We hope that you've enjoyed both our conversations on these two movies, and we hope that you get a chance to see both of them if you are still listening and you love listening to spoiler-filled conversation. Aaron, thanks for this great conversation. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.